Well, good morning. It is certainly good to be with you here this morning. Um, for those of you who do not know who I am, uh, my name is Sam Van Skoik, uh, and I have the privilege of being one of the pastoral apprentices here on staff at Evanston Bible Fellowship. Um, and I'm excited to be here with y'all. I think God has a good word for us this morning. Um, and part of my role here is to help oversee um, the grad student ministry and grad student assimilation. So again, like I did a few weeks ago, if you're a grad student and I don't know who you are, please come introduce yourself to me. I would love to meet you. Um, let me rush to express my gratitude to Jason and to John for allowing me to preach here uh, this morning. Um, I trust that my intensive and extensive week-and-a-half-long seminary training will serve me well here. Um, <laughs> So I'm a first-year seminary student up at Trinity, so Lord help, please, yes. Uh, But in all seriousness, thank you to Jason and John and the rest of the elders for the the privilege it is to preach here this morning. I do not take it lightly. Um, Before we approach God's Word this morning, um, I want us to pause for a moment or two. Um, I want us to pause and posture our hearts before God to hear from Him. Because I am under no illusion that everyone in here is filled to the brim with the joy of the Lord this morning. In fact, I know there's a lot of pain going on all throughout this room. Some of us are so weighed down by different sorrows that are plaguing us that our minds have already been consumed by them today. And I know there's some of us in here who are so busy right now. Busy at work or busy with family matters, busy with stuff. And we're already calculating all we need to do after church when we get home. And lastly, I know there's some of us in here who, if we're honest, are a little spiritually calloused. We're just in a series or a season of numbness to God. That there's no real desire for Him right now. And so before we jump in and hear from the Lord this morning through His Word... I want you to take a moment to pray for you, that the Lord would make your heart expectant to hear and receive from him this morning. So go ahead and take a few moments, you pray for you, ready your heart, and I'll come and close this out in prayer. Father, we need you. We need you more than we know. And we ask, God, that you would still our hearts. You promised to meet with us and to speak with us. So that we ask this morning, Lord, that you would lift our head a bit to see you. Remind us of the grand story we're caught up in. Lord, would you do this for your glory and for our joy in you. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So throughout the past few months, this summer, we've had a unique thing going on here at EBF. Um, We've had two different sermon series going on and interlapping. Um, And I like to compare them to Chicago's two baseball teams, uh, the Cubs and the White Sox. 
Um, the Cubs, the team most people actually watch and think about, uh, is our Pastor Jason series, The Trivial Life. Uh, but the White Sox, on the other hand, the team that embodies the little brother, uh, has been preached by those of us coming up from the seminary sandlot to put together a four-part series called God's Big Story. And what we've been doing in God's Big Story is looking at the main pillars of the biblical story with the hope that we turn and understand our lives and our world more faithfully. We've looked at three of the four big thematic threads that run all throughout the scriptures and unite them as one story. So far, we've looked at creation, fall, and redemption. With creation, we saw that God created this world and man in total perfection and harmony. That heaven and earth were created by God in a beautiful unity. And man was made in the image of this powerful, creating God. But with the fall, we were reminded that evil quickly entered and corrupted God's good creation. And humanity has been feeling the effect ever since. In redemption, we heard a few weeks ago from Ryan that God has had a plan to set aright all that went wrong in Eden. And that this plan is climactically carried out in none other than Jesus Christ. God's Son made flesh who was obedient to the point of death on a cross to atone for our sin. And three days later, he was resurrected from the dead in victory and power. So there we have it. Creation, fall, redemption. Which leads us to the fourth and final pillar of the biblical story. Consummation. The working definition that we'll work with this morning for consummation is the total and final restoration and renewal of all things by Jesus Christ. Consummation, the total and final restoration and renewal of all things by Jesus Christ. Uh, most of us, if we're honest, when we think about a, a future glory or what's coming for us, uh, we think about being in heaven forever as floating spirits who suddenly take great delight in playing harps. Um, however, this is not the image given to us by the scriptures. Uh, similarly, when we think or speak or dream about what eternity will be like, we do so as if it's so far removed from our daily experience. In other words, our hearts are so tethered to the present and the ordinary that we aren't anticipating eternity any more than our coworker who doesn't know God. So it's my hope this morning that we all would embrace God's vision of the future to combat our sufferings and to orient us to reality. This is the idea I want to have take on flesh a little more this morning. That we would embrace God's vision of the future to combat our suffering and to orient us to reality. We're going to be looking at one text and one text only this morning. So if you would, please meet me in Romans chapter 8. Again, that is Romans chapter 8.
We'll be reading verses 18 through 25, and as you're able, would you please stand in reverence for the reading of the Word of God. Romans 8, beginning in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. I'm sure if you have any church background at all, uh, that Romans 8 is a comfortably familiar passage to you. Uh, And rightly so. Uh, This chapter is sort of the Mount Everest of the New Testament in that it is unparalleled how extensively it spells out the glory of the Christian life, both present and future. And even speaking personally, Romans 8 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. And uh, the Lord has used it time and time again to encourage me in dry seasons. And I hope and I think that many of you can relate that this passage is unparalleled and how well it grips us. But right in the middle of this chapter, right in the middle of Romans chapter 8, one of the most encouraging chapters in all the Bible. Paul says something that almost seems insensitive. He says something so massive that we have to downplay it in our minds when we read it. Did you catch it? Read verse 18 with me again. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, I want you to keep in mind the Apostle Paul, who wrote the letter to the church at Rome. He's writing to a church with real people. Real people who have very real pain, sorrow, and suffering. And he has the audacity to say that the sufferings of this present time, the cancer, the loss of a loved one, the loss of a job, They are not worth comparing to the coming glory. If we're honest, and it's church, so we have to be. If we're honest, this verse seems a little too idealistic. This verse seems a little too far removed from actual human existence. This verse might be true for the Apostle Paul, but not for the average Joe who just found out that his child has cancer. 
And I know there are probably more average Joes than Apostle Pauls in here this morning. And I think our church, specifically, is in a season where this verse seems a little more insensitive and foreign than hopeful and true. And to the average Joes in here this morning, I want to encourage you by saying that there are going to be seasons where the Bible doesn't feel true. There are going to be seasons where God's promises of peace and good purposes seem far off. And this is normal. It is normal and even expected that Christians have seasons where there is little to no desire to pursue God or delight in Him. And if you're there this morning, know that our Lord is not frustrated with you. He is not impatiently wishing you would get it together already and abound in joy. Rather, our Lord knows your suffering better than you dare imagine. And he is kind toward you, and I think this morning is hopefully one of the ways he wants to lift your head a bit. He wants to captivate your heart with his beauty and the joy that awaits you in glory. So before we go farther this morning, to the average Joe in here, know that the timing and intensity of your suffering is entirely purposeful. The timing and intensity of your suffering is entirely purposeful. The Lord is not surprised. He cares. He sees you. He is committed to you with all of his being. Let's read verse 18 again. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I think it's important we chat for a minute about this word glory, so we're all on the same page. Um, What exactly is the glory that is going to be revealed to us? This glory, the glory that's going to be revealed to us, is the resurrected Christ finishing his new creation. The glory that is to be revealed to us is when Jesus makes not just heaven, but earth new too. The glory that is to be revealed to us is when all the people of God are resurrected in incorruptible bodies, forever freed from sin's corrosive presence. This is God's vision of the future. His son exalted, his people resurrected, and the earth made new. This is where you and I are headed. This is the ending and beginning that we all share in common. And this is vitally important for us to know and anticipate. Because considering the coming glory has a way of catching us up in what God's doing. It reminds us who we are and what we're headed towards. When we rejoice in the hope of this glory, we see our present and our sufferings most clearly. 
This is not to say that our present sufferings go away or suddenly become easy to bear. But it is to say that when we see our sufferings for what they are, light, momentary afflictions, preparing us for an eternal weight of glory, there's something about when we see that that grounds us in the love of God. So church, embrace God's vision of the future to combat your sufferings with hope. Now, I want to follow Paul's bold statement in verse 18 with one of my own. So get ready. I think the Holy Spirit, through Paul, anticipated our disbelief when we read this. Why do I say that? Well, I think the rest of Romans 8 supports and gives evidence to the bold claim of verse 18. In other words, the rest of Romans 8 is showing us precisely why the coming glory isn't worth comparing with our present suffering. And what we'll see is exactly how embracing God's vision of the future will orient us to reality. It'll make sense of the world around us. So read with me once more, beginning in verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, I'm about to make my fourth grade English teacher very proud, wherever she is right now, uh, by pointing something out to y'all in these verses. Um, Paul, in these few verses, employs something called personification, right? It's that figure of speech where an author or writer will ascribe human characters, characteristics or capacities to non-human objects. And in the verses we just read, creation is being personified given the human-like emotions of eagerness and longing. And when we read creation here, we need to think about all subhuman creation. The earth, the trees, the skies. Think of everything around you. And creation is described in verse 19 as waiting with eager longing. And I admit, this is a bit of an odd image, um, but even the original Greek here emphasizes creation's eagerness. The whole cosmos is portrayed as being in a state of robust readiness, as being on the edge of its seat, an expectation of something massive. Which rightly leads us to ask, what prompts this excessive eagerness of creation? The text answers this for us. The revealing of the sons of God. This is really interesting language used here, the revealing of the sons of God. And I think it's clear from our passage's sort of futuristic flavor that what creation is waiting for so expectantly is the resurrection of the people of God. When what we truly are in Christ 
is revealed in bone and blood to the world. When Christ returns, the Apostle John tells us that we will see him and be made like him. That there is this very real moment in history when those who are in Christ will be transformed in a moment, in a blink of an eye. We will all inherit incorruptible bodies like our Savior. And creation itself is excessively expectant of this moment. But why? Why is creation so eager for this? Read verse 20 and 21 again with me. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In short, creation is expectant for the revealing of the sons of God because it's got skin in the game. Its own freedom and glory are on the line. According to this passage, creation has a strange sense of knowing that when the sons of God are revealed, it will be set free from its bondage to corruption. Creation is anticipating with vigor this great day when it's released from the bondage that God placed on it in Eden. This is what verse 20 specifically is talking about. After the fall of Adam and Eve, you'll recall that God cursed the earth and that sin fractured the original good purpose of the cosmos. All of creation was meant to be a dwelling place for God. But instead, it is now a dwelling place of idolaters and countless evils. Since that fretful day that creation has been subject to futility, to wars, to natural disasters, to having a corruptible nature, we're told that God carried out this subjection in hope that creation will one day fulfill its intended purpose again by inheriting the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, I want to latch on to that little phrase, in hope, at the end of verse 20 that you'll see. Because I think it speaks significantly about the character of our God. Creation at the fall of man experienced one of its most darkest and horrid hours. It was made subject to millennia of futility, brokenness, and vanity. The great curse of creation... The moment that initiated creation's unwanted covenant with perversion. The moment when all creation was submerged into a torrent of evil. Paul just said that this moment is carried out by God in hope. In hope. In hope that creation would be purified and be a dwelling place for the redeemed, resurrected people of God. God subjected creation in hope because he has a plan and a future that defies death to its face. This shouldn't really surprise us since God has always been in the habit of bringing, out, of bringing about good through the dark and the disfigured. When creation was made evil slave, 
God already knew the day of liberation. When Joseph from the Old Testament was betrayed by his brothers or thrown into an Egyptian prison, even then God uses it for good to sustain his people. When God allows trials to enter your life, do you think his character has changed? Do not let yourself be deceived, Christian. God is unwavering in his good purposes for you. Trust him. Trust him. Trust that he cares for you with a greater intensity than you dare imagine. Trust that he is moving all things in your life toward the day when he makes heaven and earth new in his son. Read verse 22 with me. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Even now, even right now as we're here, creation yearns for renewal. And it does so, the text tells us, in the pains of childbirth. Now, I do not know, nor will I ever know, the pain it takes to go through childbirth. Um, But I am very grateful to my mom that she went through it to give birth to me. Uh, I know I'm getting a little off track, but my mom is actually in here, so I had to find some way to give her a shout-out. So, (laughs) what better way to do that than to thank her for giving birth to me? So, anyways, back on track. Um, This language is peculiar. Uh, But if we think about what comes after the pains of childbirth for a woman? A child. New life. A woman is subject to hours of pain for the sake of new life. I think there is an intentional connection here. What comes after creation's groaning is done? New life, renewed, glorified creation. Creation knows its intrinsic brokenness and it groans because of it. And in case you think this is mere myth, just think of what happened this past week in Texas. I'm sure all of you are aware of the tragic effects caused by Hurricane Harvey um, in the southeast corner of Texas, and um, it made break at landfall as a Category 4 storm, and has claimed close to 50 lives, Um, the real jaw-dropping fact is that 30,000 people are displaced because of it. 30,000 people can't go home at night. 50 counties are experiencing flooding. And I don't know about y'all, but every time I checked my phone this week, I was getting some new update about the effects of Harvey. Um... And this isn't surprising, because when something like this happens, the media latches onto it, because we have this strange sense, like, we can't look away from what's happened. Like, we need to know details. We need to know what's happening. Interestingly, Jesus predicts in Matthew 24 that nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and that there will be famines and earthquakes in various places And he says that all these things are but the beginning of the birth pains. 
What's interesting about this is Jesus actually connects birth pains with natural disasters. Explaining that before he returns, the brokenness of creation will become more and more evident. And I can't help but see the overlap to our passage with creation groaning in the pains of childbirth. And while we must be faithful to pray for and support the victims of Harvey, like John was mentioning earlier with the, the handout in your bulletin, one of the effects, and I repeat, just one of the effects that disasters like this should have on us as Christians is to sober us to creation's groaning, to sober us to the reality that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. The groaning of creation for freedom is not some fruity personification that Paul employs. The earth really and truly does long to be set free. These verses in Romans 8 about creation are reality. The world around us actually longs to be set free and to have King Jesus return. This is the world you live in. Be sober to the cries of creation and groan with it for King Jesus. Read with me in verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Um, our passage's focus shifts here from creation to us, to believers yearning for the consummation of all things in Christ is not just something for creation. Um, but it's something that should mark us as believers who have the first fruits of the Spirit, the text tells us. Um, I want to touch on this language of first fruits here because I'm guessing most of you tend to not use it in your daily vocabulary. Uh, unless, of course, King James English is your preferred dialect. So, in which case, more power to thou. Um, first fruits is a phrase used in the New Testament to communicate the idea of a present pledge about some future reality. Uh, so let's flesh this out a bit. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is given to us when we receive Christ as Savior. And he's given to us for a multitude of purposes. But one of the purposes of the Spirit coming to dwell in us is to guarantee God's future for us. The Spirit is God's present testimony to us that we will one day be glorified with Christ. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. The Spirit dwells in us now so He can glorify us later. And as the Spirit dwells in us, He's preparing us for what's to come. He is the source of our groaning for God's new creation. Even more specifically, the Spirit causes us to yearn for, quote, adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. 
here in verse 23 in the text that we just read, our adoption as God's children is equated with the redemption or glorification of our bodies. These two ideas are paralleled for us, of being adopted by God and being resurrected, being glorified with Christ. This should rightly stir in us the question, aren't I already adopted by God? But yes, if you are a believer, you are undoubtedly God's adopted child now. But according to this text, your adoption is, in a very real sense, awaiting fulfillment. That there will come a day when all God says about us is made flesh. This is such an interesting thought. Our adoption as God's children, our salvation in Christ, is not brought to completion until our bodies are redeemed. Until God renews all the physical creation. Be encouraged, Christian, that God isn't just committed to saving your soul only. He's committed to all of you. He doesn't save half of you. He doesn't forgive half of you. And he certainly will not glorify half of you. Our passage continues to go on, so let's read the last two verses, 24 and 25. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see... We wait for it with patience. For in this hope we were saved. Being glorified with Christ, being resurrected with him, wasn't some neat afterthought God had after he saved you. As long as you've been a Christian, the Spirit has been preparing you to be made like Christ. But this hope that we have isn't seen. For who hopes for what he sees? Paul asks. Hope is always leaning forward in expectation of something. If you hope for something, it means you don't possess it currently. I think y'all get the point, but for sake of illustration, I have to say, I hope Stan's Donuts opens a store walking distance from my apartment. This is currently an unseen reality that I have groanings too deep for words about. Hope always entails something not seen. So why should Christian hope be any different? Paul touches on this in 2 Corinthians 4.18 when he says, The things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For example, we don't presently see Jesus Christ reigning at the right hand of the Father. But this unseen reality will be the focal point of all eternity. And in our context of Romans 8 specifically, we groan and hope for the glory that is to be revealed. The consummation of all creation in Jesus Christ. And if we hope for what we do not see, the text tells us we wait for it with patience. Patience. Every four-year-old's favorite word. 
I want to explain what what patience is not before I explain what patience is. Patience is not absent-mindedness about the coming glory. Hoping and waiting for the reign of Jesus Christ to be fully established on earth does not look like just thinking about the world to come every time you read the book of Revelation. While reading the book of Revelation, as an example, is an appropriate prompt to think about the world to come, my guess is that reading the book of Revelation is not a part of the day-in, day-out reality of your lives. Being patient for Christ's return is not the same as occasionally thinking about it. You all with me? Instead, patience is seeing the present world through the lens of what it will be. Christian patience is seeing this present world through the lens of what will be. All good and beauty we see in creation should make us yearn for more. Every majestic view of nature or every perfectly colored fall day should stir in us both delight and expectation when God makes even that new. Seeing this present world through the lens of what will be also entails a groaning over evil. This entails big picture things like natural disasters and murders we'll read about in the news. But it most especially includes evil we encounter in our lives. Every bit of family strife should cause us to grieve and also long for the day when God establishes loving harmony among all his people. Every selfish impulse we feel in ourselves, or those moments when we're shocked at the evil within us should make us all the more eager for the day that Christ heals us entirely. Do you see how patience is not absent-mindedness about what's coming? Patience is interacting, interacting faithfully with the present because it knows the future. Patience longs for the good to be made perfect and for the evil to be eradicated. Patience looks far more like preparation than passivity. And I know all of this about creation groaning and the consummation of all things and the glorification of all things in Christ seem foreign to us. All we have known is life east of Eden, life under the effects of sin. But one of the purposes the Lord has for you this morning is to sober you to what is coming. This vision of God's future is coming. The Bible is clear about it, and it's what it's been headed towards. What our passage is calling us to, church, is to embrace God's vision of the future, to combat your suffering with hope, and to orient you to reality. This call is twofold. 
And it begins with combating our suffering with hope. Our God has not left us alone in our pain, but neither has he left us without a future to anticipate. To those of you who feel like this season of life is especially marked with suffering, hear me. God is moving you towards something. God has allowed no purposeless pain to plague you. He is good, and his future for you is secure and all-satisfying. Creation and the church are groaning with you. You are not alone, and your God has given you an indestructible hope. The second part of the call this morning is to have God's future orient us to reality. Do not fall asleep to what's true. Don't be deceived into thinking that some other narrative can make sense of the world. We need to know, church, what we're moving towards. So let yourself be caught up in God's story. Engage with the world as one who is enchanted by what will be. Jesus is king and his kingdom is at hand. You will be resurrected and see him as he is. Heaven and earth will be made new. This is the ending all the Bible moves towards. This is the finale to the story of stories. This is what the world itself is groaning for. And miraculously, in Christ, you have a part to play in this story. Pray with me. Father, we are grateful that you care for us so intimately. We thank you for the future you have in store for us. I pray, Spirit, you would continue your work in our hearts to have us anticipate what is to come. Lord Jesus, we thank you for making this future possible. That it's only through you coming to die for us and be raised again that we can have this hope. So, Lord, be honored, be glorified. And Lord Jesus, come quickly. And it's in King Jesus' name I pray. Amen.